from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Francine Maciello of the Comparative Literature and Spanish and Portuguese departments discussing her book, The Senses of Democracy, Perception, Politics, and Culture in Latin America. She is joined by Tom McEnany of the Comparative Literature and Spanish and Portuguese departments. So I'm just going to stand up here for a second um, and introduce Francine once again, and, and then I'll uh, take a seat and we'll get to the main event, which is listening to what she has to say about this marvelous book. Um, so Francine Maciello is, is Sydney and Margaret Anker, distinguished professor emerita in the humanities here at UC Berkeley, where she taught, uh, I thought, for more than 30 years, but she told me 39 and a half years, um, in the departments of comparative literature and Spanish and Portuguese, and has had an, a tremendous effect on the field of Latin American studies, uh, the humanities here at Berkeley, and on countless numbers of students. She is uh, the author of numerous books and an, also an unco uncountable number, at least for me, of articles in both Spanish and English. And she has long been recognized as a legendary and almost mythically dedicated and innovative teacher, mentor, and scholar. Alongside and in conversation with a cohort that included Sylvia Malloy, Jean Franco, Josefina Ludmer, Mary Louise Pratt, and former Berkeley professor Gwen Kirkpatrick, among others, Francine Maciello helped invent the contemporary field of Latin American literary study, and that's no exaggeration. She did so through the introduction of new theoretical models from new historicism to post-colonialism and feminism, the discovery of new canon-changing materials. This is really a kind of heroic effort and really central to a lot of her work, um, especially the discovery of, of texts from women writers and forgotten material culture in the archives of, of Buenos Aires um, and throughout the Southern Cone. Um, this intensive archival research has changed the way that we read and the way that um, the, the kinds of materials that we do read. And then finally, she's also responsible for the creation of new and incisive close readings of everyone from the heroes of the avant-garde to 19th century hybrid texts from politicians and essayists and writers to today's contemporary aesthetic experiments in painting, sound work, and performance art. The book that we're here to celebrate today somehow includes all of these, all of these capabilities, all of these materials, all of these histories, ranging from the 19th century to the present, in a brilliant display of literary erudition and political commitment that also sets out the marvelous map of a passionate reader's mind. And it really is a passionate examination of the importance and relevance of literature today. And I hope that's something that we'll have uh, time to talk about. The senses of democracy, perception, politics, and culture in Latin America demonstrates an often beautiful prose and rigorous argument how a cultural history of the senses and what Francine calls sense work pervades the politics and aesthetics and especially the literature of the last 150 years in the Americas, both South and North. Its reach is truly stunning as it moves in detail from the different uptake of French Enlightenment political theories of sensation by Thomas Jefferson in the United States and Rivadavia in Argentina to new theories of sentimentalism and the sentimental novel in Cuba, Argentina, Peru, and the United States. And then on through everyone from Neruda to Joyce to Widobro to Proust, you know, across, across the avant-garde. Um, 
before concluding with two chapters that bring together literature and artworks to reflect on the experience and, and legacy of, of torture during the different dictatorships in, in the Southern Cone in Argentina and Chile, um, also the effects of, of neoliberalism, neoliberal economy, and the art artistic responses and the political responses to the present day. Okay, I could go on and on, obviously, for, for more time, but I want to turn the conversation over to the person we're all here to, he here to hear from, so please join me in welcoming Professor Francine Maciela. <laughs> Thank you so much to Tom and to the people in the Townsend Center, Tim, Rebecca, Colleen, for organizing this and for introducing a new prize, which is the Berkeley Book Chat Mug. And so all of you should know, especially the younger scholars, if you write a book, you get a mug. So I'm very happy with that. Um, thank you, Tom, for this introduction. Um, I guess I should talk about the way in which the ways in which I came to this project and to this book, and I gather I'm supposed to be brief because Tim will intervene. Um, there's been a big discussion in Anglo-American and European studies about the census, right? Um, Latin America has been excluded from that conversation largely. Well, excluded. People haven't. Latin Americanists haven't taken up the topic necessarily. And I wanted to see how, this how we could construct a history of the senses to anchor this discussion in a historical project, in a comparative project, and to see the way, in particular, what I was really interested in was to see the way in which sense work, I coined the phrase. I liked it. You like it? I love it. It's yeah, great. I think I, I, I had how a sense I that it? you should coin a phrase when you write a book. And then, okay. anyway, so I invented this idea of sense, how sense work came to seep into nationalist discourses, and then also how people resisted it. So um, th th this is sort of the groundwork for, for this. So it's, my questions were, what is, the role of the, what is the role of the senses in democratic process, and especially in the late 20th century in Latin America? What's the role of the senses in military dictatorships and resistance, and something we all know without having to go into this? To produce information, these miserable military dictatorships turned to torture. They made the body speak. And in order to make that body speak, those bodies, as we all know from Elaine Scarry decades ago, they had to work on the body in pain, right? And they had to reconfigure the senses in order to produce information. Of course, there was a resistance to that by artists and literary figures and, of course, protest people who said, no, this is not going to work that way. Um, and there's a, and of course, a question comes from that. What happens when the when the state relies upon sensory data to organize a discourse? And it's not always the same. It's not always, and this depends on nation, political situation, historical moment. Right? You, there's a big discussion in the world of sense studies that says the senses locate us in the now, in the present moment. You eradicate history, and you don't think about a future. That's true up to a point, but the senses, when we talk about bodies, and in particular sensory responses, we're also anchoring ourselves in a very specific situation with a cultural context to, to, to go with it. 
Um, people say that we're in the age, not of homo sapiens, but of homo bacteria. And I, that stuck in my head. And I thought it was an interesting way to move to that. That's one thing that moved me toward this project, thinking of how we move, mobilize ourselves in this, in this sensual world, and in some case, wind up as zombies. I think it's not strange that in this moment where there's so much attention to sensory material, to the affects, we're also in the age of zombies, right? Zombies in television, theater, and this and that. Um, on the one hand, there's this anthropological exodus that Hart and Negri always spoke about. And on the other hand, there's a tremendous emphasis on the corporeal. So these things were pushing me back and forth in, in general terms, not to mention this wonderful anchor of Marx in the 1844 manuscripts where he says the history of the world is the history of the body. The history of labor is the history of the body. And I was, that stayed with me for, I mean, it still stays with me um, a lot. So I just want to show you two images. I hope I'm not introducing a new problem in these book chats, but I just, three images that I want to talk about. One, this is this cover of the book, which you say, what the hell is that? This, 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 the artist is Damien Schock, a Chilean multimedia artist who went to Bolivia, to the north of Chile and Bolivia, where they have these wonderful pagan festivals in which the local populations come in disguise. It's kind of carnival. But what was interesting about this particular photograph, and this was an enormous screen, the, the, real, the real image is probably the size of this blown-up thing, you know, sort of six feet by three feet, whatever, is that Damien took this photograph in a garbage dump in Bolivia, okay? And he has, he, he, I don't know if he dressed his, his figures, but I, I think these figures put this together in costumes made in China and Japan, right? So these guys are, are disguising themselves, and what they disguise themselves are, are in outfits made elsewhere, so there's a whole conversation about globalization and how culture circulates, but with textures. These are things you want to touch and feel and bring close to you, and yet, of course, these are fabricated elsewhere. And of course, the figures, who are most likely indigenous, right, and their outfits are situated in a garbage dump, which is there's a whole conversation about the recycling, the recycling of imported materials in Latin America. Anyway, I like that image, but I want to bring up a, 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 a sort of a, the, the unquem, the contemporary moment, and I was taken by two images in particular. This is by a former Berkeley computer science major who went on to become an artist, Ian Cheng, who was very concerned with the question of sentience. How do we feel? What, what are the limits to, to, to feeling? But what you see here, and this was an exhibit at PS1 in New York, is that there are no humans. These are machines that are feeling, or feeling for us through prostheses, under iPhones and some kind of liquid giving off electric shocks. So the machines are kind of responding to each other. Now you could say, of course, humans constructed this, right? So they're not really autonomous, but this raises questions in a post-human world about how we're organizing the sensory. Another, but now here's a sort of a, a humanized version of this. This is a photograph of Raul Surita, Chilean's, Chile's national poet, arguably one of the great names in Latin American poetry today. And this is a, a biennial in India 
where Sorita was very concerned with an event that we all read about several years ago of a, 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 a five-year-old Syrian boy who was crossing the Mediterranean and he drowned and his mother drowned and his father was on the shores, I think in Italy, thinking about the arrival of the, of, of the, bot, of the cadaver of his son. And Sorita wrote a poem, wrote several poems, but to access these poems, which are on the far wall, the spectators had to walk through the water, okay? And Sarita was very clear about this. He said, I want people to have the experience of being in the water in which the Syrian child died, okay? Now you could, we can have a conversation and say this is stagey, this is too manipulated, manipulated as, a, as a topic, but it, I think it gives you different extremes of the human, the human engagement around the, sensi, uh, around the sensorial and Ian Cheng's question of the post-human right, engagement of things. So I started there. I, as a, is my time up yet? You, you let me know when I can't speak anymore. Anyway, <laughs> I, started, I started this manuscript. I was interested in images like this and in literary text of our contemporary moment. And I went back. And I said not so long ago, I think we're always writing, rewriting the same book. Well, I was working for many years in the 19th century. And I went back into the 19th to see how, how this question of the sensorial came into Latin America. A phrase that any Latin Americanist knows is civilization versus barbarism. And barbarism is the world of the senses. And civilization is the world of, the, of logic and reason. How did this filter into Latin America and not the United States? And then I found something. I spent, I had the occasion to give some talks at the University of Virginia. And, but really what I was doing was I was floating around the rare books room. And I found out something that was so tremendous that I keep repeating it. I repeat it still in my sleep. Jefferson was in Paris, as you know, in the 1785, I could be wrong on the date. And there he meets the sensualist philosophers, among them Destutus Tassi, who was kind of an operator and just wanted to be known in the Americas. And he said to Jefferson, take my stuff back to America, get it translated, and see what you can do with it. And it was all discussion of the senses, right? In inheriting the logic of Condillac. No? But, but Destutus Tassi had his project. And Jefferson, good man that he was, tried to install the sensualist philosophers on the first reading lists of the University of Virginia. And of course, Jefferson died, but the philosophers at, at UVA said, no way. We are, this is not about the senses. We are philosophers of sincerity. They were following the Scottish school. We don't want this. And they expunged it, and they trashed it. I had occasion at, the, at UVA not only to read Jefferson's comments on the translation of Destut de Tracy, but to see the course lectures um, in 1826 in philosophy. And they hated this material from France. Never seen. Okay, So this is kind of a founding original moment scene. In Argentina, a liberal leader of state who was actually president for one year, Rivadavia, was also in Paris in the 1780s. And he also met Destut de Tracy. And the students also put, did this number on, on, on Rivadavia and said, take this back to Argentina and put my work in circulation. And he did that. And, and Rivadavia, when the University of Buenos Aires opened in 1821, the philosophers put this on the course, course outlines. 
and I read the course notes, which are in our library. Thank God for the library. Um, and they're celebrating Condillac, sensualist philosopher. You have to feel before you, before you think. Our access to the world is through the senses. And who were the students in this class? The founding fathers of Argentine state. Sarmiento, Echeverria, these are big names. If you're not a Latin Americanist, it doesn't mean anything. But these were the founding fathers of the whole Argentine project. And they went forward. And from this comes Sarmiento, who's, I'm not going to show you this picture yet. I'll show, wait, OK. This, this whole conversation started in this um, prep school, which was anti-scholasticism. And they bring this, these philosophies in, sensualist philosophies, to challenge, to challenge scholasticism, and in, these become philosophies of state. I, this was an Argentine newspaper for 1801 in the lines, not this particular page, but the opening line was, to heck with scholasticism. It's ruining us. We have to modernize. Let's look at other forms of French philosophy. And this is what sticks. It sticks through the 19th century, how we see, how we feel, um, Discourses of state, which very often become diatribes against this man, Juan Manuel Rosas, who was, who was a killing machine, basically. Okay, And Rosas was blood, and Rosas was savagery. And the answer was, we have to challenge this in another way. This was La Barbarie. Let's challenge and open up the conversation a different way. In sensual, sensuality became central to the official discussions of state. No? And how we see and how we hear. And Sarmiento actually, I have to show you this photograph. He looks a little crazy. But anyway, this Sarmiento, who becomes president of Argentina in, the, in 1868. Yeah, OK. Until then, he's writing essays and travel literature and telling people how they have to feel. He said, and he has a line in one of his travel books I saw, I heard, I acted. OK? What he never told us, by the way, is that Sarmiento is very hard of hearing, and here he is with a hearing trumpet. And I found it extraordinary, because he has so much about the sounds of the, of the nation and how we have to learn to hear the nation. I couldn't hear a damn thing. Anyway, that was sort of important. Anyway, I started there. This was my point of departure to say, let's see if this discussion of, sens of sensuality has roots that are not. It's very hard to talk about something unique to Latin America. Everything is moving around. Today, you probably saw this online. There's a new book in English translation at Duke University Press by um, Bonaventura uh, Dos Santos. And he says, Latin America is the place of the sensory. North America is the place of reason. No, no, no. we're not going to do that, OK? We're going we're to make this more complicated. And I hope that this book complicates the argument, which is why I brought a lot of material, not an excessive amount, but I did bring in materials from the US tradition. Later, as we get into the 20th century, Joyce is in there because Joyce is in dialogue with certain Argentine authors. Most of this manuscript or book, I guess it's past that because I have the cup. Um, <laughs> this, most of this book is about Argentina and Chile. I took forays into Cuba a little bit, into Brazil. but. I'm an Argentinist. This is, this is what I do. I can't, I can't erase that from myself. And the questions that were pushing this ahead, I don't want to go chapter by chapter because we're, we won't have the time. But 
I was really interested in how the senses take form in culture, what they tell us about cultural progress, what the, and later in our contemporary moment, what they tell us about consumer desires, right? In the 19th century, what they tell us about war, how technology comes in. If you, and I know people like Jonathan Crary have done amazing work around technology in the 19th century, but Crary winds up giving, um, giving precedence to the, to the world of, of, the, of the optic, right? And I said, there's other things that are going on. And, uh, and, and technology is also helping us to see, not only see better, but to hear better, to taste in different ways. And I was tracking this around in different Latin American texts. And depending on the national crisis, for, I'll, I'll give you a quick example. Um, under the realm of Juan Manuel Rosas, the man who was surrounded by skulls, there was a very efficient and elaborate spy system. And people were always listening, 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 so, uh, listening, spying. Um, and interestingly enough, many of the great 19th century masterpieces are about listening, listening to music. Um, Juana Manuela Gorriti, who is one of the great, almost campy Latin American feminists of the 19th century, Gorriti is listening to the opera. She's listening to Hernani about intrigues and spies to resolve things on land at home in Argentina, listening, different ways of listening. But that's not the case in Peru, where food is important because there's a, a crisis, a split between the rich and the poor over who gets to eat what. And that always becomes the taste of food becomes central to Clorinda Mato de Terno. Anyway, enough of the 19th century, which is always my great passion. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip ahead with my image. Do time? Yeah, no. can, I, can I jump in and just ask you one Please. question? Oh, just, I'm sorry. No, 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 because it, this, I just want to go back to, before you jump ahead, to this image from Zurita. Okay, go ahead. So um, one of the things that you've, you've already talked about in certain ways, but um, is part of the trajectory of the book, is that it begins, as you said, first with this kind of political history of the senses, and then the importance of literature in, in terms of managing how we hear, in the case of, um, of, some, of some of Sarmiento, in the case of how we you know, experience spectacle, in the case of Echeverria, et cetera. And you, and you bring this forward. But when you get to the middle half of the, the 20th century, and definitely into the late 20th century and early 21st century, we move increasingly away from, from literature. Literature comes back. It doesn't, doesn't go away. Um, so, so two questions out of that. One is, why? Why do you turn to other materials like this? Or why does Zurita, for instance, turn to the experience of walking through the water in order to go read the poems? Or in another one of his famous um, pieces, writing on the desert itself, on the Atacama Desert, um, writing his, his poem there, or writing it in poems in the skies over, over New York, et cetera. Um, so why, do, uh, why, does, why does literature, again, it doesn't fall out, but, but why, do these, why do we need these other ways to experience and sense in that late 20th century moment, and then what happens to literature. And just one other thing that you have, you have this line um, in the last <coughs> chapter of the book, and you t you're talking about the post-humanism post and the kind of some, some of the things that you've shown us here, and you say, not unexpectedly, literary text may have the last word on these modern dilemmas. And for, and for, and for me, for within the book, it's not unexpected. But within culture, it's totally unexpected. Because many people would say, that's not where we'd go. We'd go towards all of these other artistic experiments. So could you talk a little bit about that relationship? OK. 
No, thank you. Thank you for pushing me in that direction. Um, yes, what you observed is absolutely right. I did fan out. I considered the visual arts in this discussion. There is some material on performance, not much on film, but, but different, inst different installation pieces. But I, for me, literature has the last word because this is the site where experience gets represented. And, and the magic, which all of us in this room know very well, the magic of literature is that from words, which are just black scratches on a page, on a white page, we can create sensory responses, characters, life, figures whom we love. No, we create bodies out of that. And that seemed to me that, that literature continues to offer us this venue. And those of you who know me know that I am sort of, I'm part of that cohort that's very important in the humanities in Berkeley that believes that literature counts. And literature can speak to us in ways that perhaps other, other, other endeavors cannot. So I, I needed to, I ended this book with a, a discussion of Diamela Eltit's penultimate novel, Fuerzas Especiales, which is a great vindication of creativity in a post-human world. And Di, for those of you who don't know Diamela, who is coming in next month to, to Berkeley, sponsored by the... Um, yeah, October 11th, she'll be October, here. What is this? What's the group that Natalia runs? The Arts and Research Council. And I encourage you to go hear her. Diamela is one of the great avant-garde novelists in Latin America who somehow captures, before anyone can speak about these things in full sentences, the signs of the times. Now, she's actually, many have considered her the author who responds most cogently to neoliberalism. No? which is another conversation. But in any case, Diamela supplied answers for me that it is creativity that, that, that one can produce in the signs of all of this dehumanization, right? And it can produce bodies and sensorial responses. And I, I guess to answer you in a short sentence, I needed to be there, okay? It was, it was what spoke to me most cogently, although I want to just show, I'm, I'm, I apologize, I'm skipping ahead here and skipping through the 19th century. These were 1920s ads from newspapers, which were all about technology. But I just, I wanted to go to certain artworks, right, which don't resolve the problem entirely. The, this artist, Liliana Maresca, came up during the dictatorship in Argentina, and the line was, you're not going to torture me, I'll torture myself. Now, this was the response to that. Or here's an example of a Chilean artist, Catalina Parra, from the famous line of the Nicanor, she's the daughter of Nicanor Parra, who brought up the tale of the Imbunche, which is suturing, it's a, it's a, a, a tale in, in native folklore in Chile of, of the devil coming and suturing all of the orifices and the sensory access, via lines of access, that people can have. And this became a great metaphor for the Chilean dictatorship. Pinochet wouldn't let us feel, right? We had no head, no nose, no mouth, and so forth. Here's another example of what visual artists said. This is Adriana Varejao. Thank you, Sebastian, for securing the authorization for this. Adriana Varejao is a Brazilian artist, and you can see she works on the one surface with tiles. These are the tiles that belong to the colonial enterprise of the Portuguese. And what is behind the tiles? flesh, 
human labor. And she wanted to make us acutely aware of this. So to, to go back to Tom's question, why should literature seal, off the, seal the deal and not visual arts? I could have done that. But I was very impressed upon what literature demands of us. It demands another work with the imagination. And that is not to make less of the visual arts. I want to show you this. Guillermo Nunez is a Chilean visual artist who was tortured by Pinochet's police. And to this day, he is still painting the experience of torture, which he can't reach. And you can see everything is with strung out bodies. And it's not enough for him. He keeps going. This is superimposing the Chilean experience on the camps, on the experience of the camps in Germany. But anyway, I wanted to, I, but, but, but I, I needed to give, it, give the verbal register the final line on this, it was, I mean, maybe it was wrong. Maybe I should have not. No, I don't think it was wrong. I insist on it. L let me just jump in because the, the towns and authorities would like us to open up the conversation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so if there, if there are questions, uh, we, can, we can start with those questions. If there are no questions, I can ask you another question. But, but this is really the moment to open it up to all of you and uh, let you ask any questions you might have about what Francine has said so far, about the, about the book, about the artworks we've, we've looked at. Etc. You can leave that open, I think. Shall we yeah, because yeah, then we can take it. Okay. Thank you. So, Francine, I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the labor of interpretation, because you said that the um, the Sarmiento Sarmiento photograph uh, wasn't as powerful. At least this is the way I heard you. It wasn't as powerful as a literary representation. You wanted to give the final. Uh, final word to the word, as it were. But that image is also an interpretation. And um, presumably having to walk through the, the water that's in that photograph is also a representation, right, of, mm -hmm. the, of the ocean. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference between this, this as a, a representation that requires a labor of interpretation and a literary text that requires a labor of interpretation? That, that's a good question, but I think, we, I think we can answer that and talk about the operations of the literary. Yes, it requires interpretation, but it requires much. I'm not making light of Sorita, who is a poet, by the way. Poet first, and this is just an installation, secondarily, okay? Who wants us to struggle to get to the poems which are, which are on the back wall of this warehouse, you know? He wants, it's not only, so I guess he would complicate the question of interpretation by saying that interpretation also requires us to struggle to get to the word. And maybe that's what the literary does. We are struggling with it in, in different ways. They are physical ways to be certain, right? But we have to make, an, we have to make those passes, those steps in, 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 a, in, another, in a style that's distinct from seeing a visual work. No, I don't, I don't know if I'm answering you. I think it's something that, that maybe we should spend more time on. Right? But I do think that the literary experience requires more steps in the interpretive process. And to, to feel, and we all have had this experience. Right? We've all had this amazing, erratic experience in looking at artwork on the wall. But we've also had this experience in literary texts. Oh my gosh, right? Wow. Huh? I got it. 
know, and we all know we all know that the 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 aesthetic high that that produces. Let's say that. Just a quick follow up on that. You know, you talk about this this history of of sensualist philosophy and how it plays out across all these different um, contexts. And one of the things that you come back to again and again is that there is this insistence in those philosophies about sensation happens and then we think. That's, mm -hmm. there's an, that's the encounter. And, and you link that up then to a whole turn um, from, of the last, say, 20, even 30 years with affect theory, with object-oriented ontology, with new materialism, with thing theory, all of these different ways to think about materialism. And you don't adopt any of them. You, you kind of come up to them and you say, <laughs> they have their point, but that's not what I'm doing. Um, and so why, just to follow up on, on Vicky's question, if, if the interest is in some ways thinking about sensation as a pathway to collectivity, um, thinking about sensation as a way to um, register, obviously, these histories of political violence um, and to respond to those histories of political violence, again, if, if it's, we sense first and then we think, why does, it, does, does literature, is it able to short circuit that process in some ways? Or, what, again, just to come back to literature, what is it doing vis-a-vis -vis those other materials? It may be there, the reverse. We, we read first, and then we produce sensation. And when we produce sensation, we can also respond with, I, don't, I hate the word empathy. I don't want to get, get into But we, we have other forms of identification with that, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that maybe the, the situation, maybe we, we read, we think, and we feel. Now, which literature is constantly playing with those circuits mm -hmm. of experience that are there. Yeah, no? sure. I mean, the artwork is too, right? All of, all of you in this room you know, who are readers of Kant you know, stand in front of the work of art and think about the aura, the erratic moment, right? Well, OK, we can do that with the work of art. But the literary work requires different, different movement and temporalities, space, right? And it, do, it requires a different kind of puzzle solving to get to the sensual. Great book, Francine. Uh, I already told you this, but uh, I, when, when you give me the book, I went directly to chapter three and tried to devour as, as soon as I can. <laughs> and, and, and you talk about the spiritists and the 20s. and and. It fascinated me that you didn't actually approach the, the issue of gender and, and this idea of senses and um, all these spirits always put women as the medium and they are the bodies and they are feeling things and always there are men around analyzing. And, and this brings me back to your idea of Thomas Jefferson and, you know, and the North is the mind. Yeah. But, uh, um, you know, what do you think about, I mean, women were the bodies in, in, in the 20s with these spirits and this esoteric, like Agliostro with Obro with all these very skinny women feeling things and the guys are analyzing and trying to, to you know, verbalize this. Mm. Okay, maybe I should explain one thing about this chapter three that I'm attached to as well as Fabiana. Um, Chapter three was what happens in the 1920s with a new hypermodernity, which we label in the art world avant-garde, but maybe not. Right? What happens in modernity with new technologies, which can be cinema, the telephone, all these things, uh, speed, 
right? Okay, distance. People come in to us because of the telephone. We're closer to each other. It's a sonic technology, but things. There's a there's a there's a tremendous disturbance of the given order of things. And what what I claim, I make this claim through Joyce and an, and an Argentine writer named Roberto Arlt, who is picking up Joyce here and there. I, I, we can spare the details for the moment. But in any case, there were not, and the poets, the great poets of the 1920s, Neruda, Vallejo, these are the poets who believe in tactility, who write about it, bringing things closer, talking about fabrics, thinking of Neruda, shoes, fabrics, bringing things in close, because modernity separates us and keeps us apart. The culmination, this is to get to Fabian's question very directly, is that for many artists and writers, bringing things in close was never sufficient enough. And they turned to the supernatural. They turned to seances. It's it, right. They were students of Blavatsky. No one knows this better than Fabian, who wrote about Blavatsky. Right? They're trying to bring in things close through spiritualism. Maybe they can connect through spiritualism. But how are they connecting? Right? Through electrical shocks, Ouija boards, this and that. It's a, the sensorial that leads to that. Where are women in all of this? Very often, right? Women are medium. The medium for this contact, right? Mm -hmm. In some, in a good number of literary texts, the women are murdered. I'm thinking of Roberto Arlt as a case in point. But, but there's, there's, always, there's a way to capture, capture these new sensor, these sensorial expressions, bring our bodies closer. And then we see it's, we're always losing the game. It's running away. And very radical um, artists in the, these years are turning toward alternative what I would call pseudoscience, but it seems to do the trick. It does the trick for resolving this problem, let's say that. Whether they really connect with the dead is another story, but it resolves, it resolves some kind of problem. I don't know, Fabian, I don't know if I answered your question. I, I, well, you're talking about the, the different approach. Mm -hmm. Instead of going with this very classic you know, idea of what women are, but you, you went beyond that. I mean, uh, oh, that's glad. what I found uh, <laughs> remarkable. I'm not giving you any candy, but I'm really uh, that you, you see it more like a like an end, like a, a whole structure instead of you know. As we grow up with these powerful feminists saying, "Where is where are the woman? Where is the voice of the woman?" You, you transcend that. In this. That's why oh. I found it fascinating. Oh, thank you. I'm glad that happened. By the way, I should say for those of you who are not Latin American, is the 1920s is a real problem for us. Because these poets, Neruda, Vallejo, they all wrote manifestos. And so when we study these writers, when we teach these writers, we give out the manifesto. And then we say, here, read according to this proposal. And we get stuck time and time again. So the discussion of the 1920s in Latin America is kind of paralyzed, no? Do you think? I don't know. No, I mean, I, th I think what Fabiana is pointing out, and that, that you know, is that is that it's not paralyzed. That you're you're putting it into, okay, into new perspectives, and and, o and others are as well. And I mean, 
that part of part of part of what's happening in that chapter um, is also, as you point out, linking it up to the, both the particularities of these avant-garde movements in their moments and, and their regional context, but also if you talk about someone like Widobro or Neruda, I mean, these are people who are traveling all over the world. They're also drawing from the Parisian avant-garde, but rethinking the relationship between literature and media technologies, mm -hmm. as you pointed out, mm -hmm. and, the, and what the medium is, the medium as the kind of seance, spiritualist idea of the medium, and at the same time that you have the technological medium, and you show how those things are, are intersecting, I think, and, and what the consequences are for literature and how literature is used to think through them. So I don't think it's paralyzed at all. I, I think you're, you're there at the, yeah, you know, the, yeah. the push forward. Well, okay, I, I'll be quiet about the ways in which we studied this, but okay, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thank you for a very interesting uh, talk and discussion. I'm a scholar of 19th, late 18th century, uh, 19th century French melodrama, uh, particularly novelistic melodrama, and I'm very interested in and how what kind of affects are generated through the, the consumption of this text, primarily through you know silent reading. But uh, my question has to do with how literary texts, printed texts, are consumed now. Obviously, plays are delivered orally and visually. Um, novels are often read in, 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 the, in the silence and privacy of, 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 the, of the reader, but then in work, more working class situations are read aloud to the less literate members of, uh, of the community or, and so on and so forth. And what I'm, my question has to do with this. It gets back to the question of the literary per se. Um, which is something I'm very much invested in, but also I've been reading and appreciating over the last 15 years the works uh, and writings of Brian, Brian Mitsumi and so on who've been working on affect theory and their examples tend to privilege the visual, the oral, and the tactile. And why? Because that's something that bypasses thought. It's so immediate, it's so direct that thought can't quite intervene. It, it, it's always there, but it comes a little bit after the fact, after the first experience of sense, of the, you know, the sensory experience. And, how, and so there seems to be an, an somewhat unstated argument for those modes of experience versus the printed one, particularly one that's not orally delivered or visually delivered in any, in any in other, in, in, as a mode of consumption. So I was just wondering if you could say a little more about that disti distinction about, it's not just literature, but of course it's literature consumed in a particular way, maybe quietly, silently, of a printed text. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, thank you for that question. This is, this is important and also um, coincides with a big discussion we're having right now about how we read. Do we read on the surface? What's the important of importance of description? I have a feeling Kathy Gallagher is going to speak to the group about that next week with her new book. But how does, de how does, how does description awaken the sensory, right? No? Um, and, and what are these fields, how are these fields placed in competition? The living body that touches, hears, feels versus the body reflected in print, right? And, and there are different ways of moving between the sensorial and and thought, right, or the act of reading. I thought you were going to bring up another point, which has to do with the temporalities of these presentations, especially since so much of mellow, so many melodramas were printed and serialized. So you had to wait a week for the next chapter. Think of the mysteries of Paris or what have you. 
Exactly. And there was a whole structure of temporality, new temporalities that were structured by the newspaper. We had a, a wonderful um, graduate student in Spanish and Portuguese, uh, Mayra Botaro, who made the case that against the idea that temporality is something that we learn through novels. She said, no, temporality is something that we learn through newspapers, through waiting, waiting for the next paper to show up, right? I mean, we could say well, our temporalities are now governed by MSNBC or CNN and you know, what will happen in the Supreme Court. But you know, we are being managed in a certain way by the al almanac, all these 19th century devices which organize our lives in, in, in organize our times, right? And also create an anxiety which is probably affective, right? And at the same time, we long to touch what's out there or hear it, right? Viva voce. No? I, I mean, there are interesting questions that come up on, the, on that front. I don't know if I answered you. Well. <laughs> I'll be, very, I'll be brief. I think um, what's going on in part is a, uh, in, in the writings of, of people like Brian Musumi, is a, a questioning of the sens almost the censorious nature of thought. Mm -hmm. And so by placing it somewhat belated, it's belated to the experience, uh, the aesthetic experience. It comes s somewhat late. Uh, that's a kind of timeline after all. It, 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 it what they're trying to do is highlight what thought can and can't do. It's limits, but also what it can do. But it's also in an after-the-fact position mm -hmm. in, ter in terms of the experience. And, and if we were working in the contemporary moment, we would see the interesting return of strategies of synesthesia, right? In art installations, in books. I mean, we all think of synesthesia in Nabokov, right? But, but, but there's a return to, to these crossed sensations, no? Or producing, forgive me for mentioning this name, but I have to mention it. I said this a few weeks ago. Elon Musk is trying to discover new sensory appetites that can be sold, can be marketed, new senses. And you can find this online. He's, he's recruiting neuroscientists to develop new senses. I know that strays a bit from your, from your um, observation, but there's a, we are in a moment when there's a, there's almost seems to be a demand for these crossovers for something that hasn't been experienced before. Right? And the 19th century is certainly a purveyor of those new sensations, especially by the late 19th, and the amusement park, and cinema, right? Well, the Coney Islands of the, of the world. But, which are not melodramas necessarily, but melodrama is certainly there to awaken you, no? Um, we didn't have a conversation today, probably it's just as well, no? to talk about Benjamin and shock, right? And the response to shock among these 1920, 1920s essayists and artists, and how do you control it, or George Simmel before him, keeping, keeping shock at a distance, cushioning ourselves with thought so that we don't be, so that we not be absorbed by urban shocks. And I'm sure that must come up with your discussions in, in, in melodrama. I just want to read very briefly one sentence from the from the book. No, that 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 is in some ways a response to this. In which you say, you know, to put it another another way, while romanticism with its belief in change required that sensory alertness be the tipping point toward new unlearned experience. 
Women writers of the same generation also showed the links between perceptions and thought. From there, and not yet set into words, an inkling of political expression began to find its form. Sensual response ran far ahead of reason and verbal expression. Through it, women became not only better writers, but also better readers of dimensions of the social. I think that is uh, a sophisticated response to, to, that, um, to that temporality that someone like Masumi goes after in hopes of responding to uh, what he sees as the, the kind of um, dead end in some ways of, of the linguistic turn. But at the same time, what's remarkable in reading your book as well, in which you do mention an argument like Masumi's, it's that this is the argument that already the sensualist mm -hmm. philosophers are making in the 18th century, mm -hmm. and that now is, is back. yeah, it's, it's back. And the question is, why is it back, right? And, mm -hmm. and what are, you know, where has it been? And you trace that whole history of, of the senses to, to show us where these ideas come from and how they've migrated and moved throughout these, uh, these different contexts. Um, do we have another minute? I know that Nathaniel had a question. What you were actually just saying now about um, Elon Musk, it was related, just because I remember last time you spoke, you spoke a little bit about um, advertising and um, and how, I, I wonder if you, if, if there's sort of a, you, were, you know, you did research in newspapers and you were looking at how technologies during the 20s were present in newspapers, but today how you, you would respond to the neoliberal moment and how sort of we are either being co-opted or not through uh, the media in terms of our relationship to the sensorium and say a little bit about that. Also thinking about Victor, uh, Veronica Gago's talk, it's in my mind, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, we're in the shock moment, aren't we, right? Let us see how, can we, how we can be shocked tonight when we go home to, to, to look at the, daily, at the news, right? Let us look at the world of advertising and the glitz and, this, and, and there, is, there is that shock element that anchors us almost in the now and we, with, without a memory of what happened before and no sense of a future. So yeah, mm -hmm. and the advertising world is certainly contributing to that. So go buy the book. There's much more there. Steal it. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this Berkeley Book Chat, and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in the series.